Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. There has never been more easily available information about investing, but not all of it can be trusted. This week, we discuss popular stock market myths and how they can lead investors astray. I want to know if the evidence stacks up for the various sayings, cliches and truisms that are often repeated by the media and investors alike. And later, we answer the dumb question of the week. Are corporate credit ratings useless? Okay, let's get into it. So there's certainly no shortage of investment advice that gets passed around. And much of it, as Roman said in the intro, is perhaps questionable. Now, this can be separated into straight up myths and also folk wisdom and common sense that maybe does not really apply. So Roman, how do you approach all these kind of truisms and myths that get passed around? Well, I'd always ground it in actual fact, you know, it's always worthwhile looking back in time to see exactly what's happened in the past. And then you can actually test whether some of these statements are true. And the vast majority of them simply aren't true. I mean, one, every year we get to May, don't we? And then the, the phrase comes out, sell in May and go away. And come back on St. Ledger's Day. I think that's what people say. <laughs> well, people call it the Halloween indicator. So you come back in sort of October, November time, whenever Halloween is. I don't know. <laughs> But certainly, if you look at the monthly returns of, say, the S&P 500, or you look at the monthly returns of the FTSE 100, there isn't a lot of difference month to month. I mean, month doesn't really tell you much at all, just in the same way that astrology doesn't really tell you, you know, your birth month doesn't tell you how you're going to behave as a person or what's going to happen to you. So you're saying there's not a whole lot of evidence for this fact that you can outperform by being out of the market in the summer months? No, I mean, I, th I think, look, what usually happens, at least if you're a strategist, what the strategists say is, well, these are very thin, illiquid markets because lots of the traders are on holiday. The junior's running the desk and hoping people don't call him or her. And, uh, you know, if there is a big move, if there is a big trade in a thin market, that can move it more. The same is true at Christmas time. But what's kind of interesting is if you do look at the Christmas, the December rally, is there a such a thing as a Santa rally? There is a slight upward shift in the return distribution. People do get fairly happy towards the end of the year, maybe. And that does tend to buoy markets slightly. And alcohol consumption is a lot higher. So maybe that has something to do with it <laughs> in December. Alcohol fueled euphoria. Yeah, maybe that's it. But certainly it seems as if, you know, there is a slight upward shift in the distribution for December. At least the kind of bottom quartile seems a little bit higher than the other months. That's both in the UK and the US. And I guess in the summer, like you say, the principle is that people go on holiday, the hedge fund managers are out in the Hamptons in their summer homes, and yeah, people are trading less, so prices come down. But from when I looked at it, it was like, yeah, maybe the returns are lower in the summer, but they're still positive. So why would you want to be out of the market? Yeah, there is no significant difference month to month. So I think that's one of the myths, which really is quite easy to bust. Really, the month is kind of irrelevant. The day of the week's kind of irrelevant. What is interesting is the close to close prices. So if you could trade overnight prices, there is a little bit of a, a boost that you can get that way. What does that mean? So a lot of the big moves happen between the market close and the market open. Because, of course, markets in equity don't stay open all day long. You know, you do have a market close, a market open. And a lot of trading happens at the end of the trading day. And so somebody was joking that you could actually make a lot of money by simply, you know, trading that grey market, that, that market between the close and the open. But in practice, none of these things is really practical. So I think, I think you know, in order to win this game, following one of these adages is, is really not going to work. I mean, the thing that sell in May and go away has in its favour is that it does rhyme. 
It does rhyme and it is pithy and it is memorable. Every year we get to May and the media looks for something to write about. And so you get this plethora of articles about (laughs) this phrase. And it seems smart, right? It seems as if, oh, you can do nothing and do well. But in fact, you can do that. But that's not the way to do it. And the other piece of kind of folk wisdom that I'm seeing come out a lot at the moment is this idea that active management, yeah, it might underperform passive funds generally. But when we get into a bear market, like we might be heading into right now, that's when active managers really come to the fore and sort of save you from experiencing the worst of the fall. But I don't see much evidence for that. Yeah, in fact, there was a report that was done by S&P. This is one of their index versus active reports where they looked at this myth that, you know, when there's a down market, what you really need is a professional stock picker because they'll stop you from buying stocks, which will fall more. So hopefully that can actually protect your portfolio by using their expertise. But of course, if you look at the actual evidence in 2008 and also 2000 to 2002, those are two big bear markets we've had fairly recently. The statistics are still absolutely atrocious. So if you look at large cap funds, less than half of them outperformed the benchmark in 2008 and that 2000 to 2002 episode. And for mid caps and small caps, the stats are actually much worse. It's about three quarters underperformed for mid caps. And it's about the same for small cap funds. So I just think it's worthwhile actually looking at what the evidence is. And in this case, we can bust that myth as well. Yeah, but there's no shortage of people that say it. I mean, I guess there's an incentive. There's always a reason, isn't there, to say, you know, yeah, we might underperform a lot, but now's the time to give us your money. (laughs) Yeah, they're always looking for some kind of out. You know, I mean, they say they can't outperform in rising markets because, I don't know, it's difficult to choose things which are better than the other stocks. And so conversely, maybe it's better to pick stocks during a falling market. Yeah, I think what they say is that when you get that euphoria, rationality goes out the window. So junk stocks might do really well. So, you know, I'm a professional active fund manager. I wouldn't buy the junk stock, so I'm going to underperform. But when it like comes back to sanity, that's when my expertise is king. Yeah, because fundamentals supposedly matter more. But of course, everyone has access to the same information about valuation. There can't be inside information. If there is, you go to prison. So yeah, I think it's not true that a down market is necessarily going to help stock pickers. In fact, I don't know of any market really, a kind of market condition in which they do outperform consistently. No. And I think what a lot of retail investors do is they look at the prospectus of the funds which have done well and they read it and it all looks good. But then there's one sentence printed in every single prospectus by law, which says past performance is not indicative of future results. And that's the one everyone ignores. Well, they don't tell you actually in the fine print is that most of the time we'll underperform. I think that's what they should put into the fine print for active funds. Yeah, it's like cigarette packets have to have like dirty lungs printed on them these days, (laughs) right? And like all this kind of off-putting medical advice. And the active funds should have similar things. Just a really depressed looking Kathy Wood on the front of every prospectus. (laughs) There's a one in five chance we're going to do what we say. But uh, can we have the fee anyway? That should be the warning. And I think a lot of these kind of sayings come from the active management world, don't they? So you hear, obviously, buy low, sell high. Like that's the cliche advice of the stock market, which, yeah, on the face of it, it makes sense. But it probably encourages behavior, which is not conducive to the best long-term returns. But this is the kind of thing that the equity sales desk absolutely loves at an investment bank. You know, these kind of pithy phrases, you know, they're the kind of chummy chappies that actually sell you equity if you're an institutional investor. But how do these things actually get bandied about? Well, usually it's just kind of like part of the culture. You know, this is the kind of thing that you'd spout out in the pub after a day at work in the city, for example. But it doesn't really hold water and I'd probably ignore it. 
Because eventually you have to sober up and kind of face the reality, which is that these things are just very poor guides. Yeah, and the other one is buy the dip. You hear that a lot. Or buy the effing dip, if you (laughs) want to be more specific. Well, of course, nowadays, instead of being in the pub, all of this stuff has moved on to social media. So we've got Reddit forums, we've got Twitter, and all of these are used kind of like these conversational aphorisms were bandied about in the pub. Now it's via social media. And of course, this is one we see all the time, BTFD. And in fact, it's a really bad way of approaching investment. I think it's true to say that if you buy more when equity markets are at low valuation, that's obviously going to give you a higher return. But if you are drip feeding into markets, valuation is a pretty poor measure of when you should put more into markets, unless it's at a real extreme. So let's say, you know, you go down to a 15 times multiple on forward price to earnings. Well, that's an incredible opportunity. But usually if there's just a dip, you won't get there. I mean, most dips, if you actually look at the stats, they last on average. If you look at the median dip from the previous all-time high, take a guess, actually, Michael, at how long it is. What, how long the market comes down for before it gets back to its all-time high? Yeah. How long it lasts? 80 days. Pretty close. Have you read the note? No. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> it's 60 days for the S&P. Oh, pretty good then. Uh, it's very good. I'm getting better. So, yeah, I mean, most of the time, if you kind of pile in whenever there's a dip, you know, it won't hurt you necessarily, but you're probably better off just steadily drip feeding into markets. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Buy the dip kind of works, but not if you're holding money back from markets. Like you've done a great video in the past I saw where the optimum strategy is just to be fully invested and hold forever, basically. Whereas if you're holding money back and waiting for markets to bottom out, you don't outperform, which seems counterintuitive, but it's true. Yeah, and the trick is never to hold money back because valuations are expensive. If you have got a kind of steady income, then it's best to just simply put that pound or dollar into the market whenever you receive it. And over the long term, that does better. Whereas if you hold money back when valuations are high, that almost always hurts your performance because valuations stay high for a long period of time. And so, you know, it's a very poor signal to buy equities when valuations are low. Yeah, what you want through pure luck of the draw is if you're getting a big cash windfall, you want that to happen when equity valuations are low and you put it all in at low valuations. But, you know, we can't control that. There's no point waiting. I think the one example which is different is if someone has a very large sum which they suddenly inherit or which they get from selling a business. In that case, well, there it is risky if you pile into the market in one go. There it might be worthwhile drip feeding, certainly to minimise your regret later on. But I think if valuations are crazy low, then yeah, that's the time when you really scrape down the back of the sofa and try and invest as much as you can, because those opportunities don't come along very often. And I guess this gets into the whole idea that market crashes are bad and everyone panics about market crashes. But at least if we're in the phase of our life where we're putting money into the market, we probably shouldn't see them as bad. And that's most of our lives, right? Most of the time we're earning, we're saving at least some of our salary. So I think for most people, they're in that kind of situation for the vast majority of the time. So I think the one thing that I get speaking to people who are not used to investing is they're terrified of market crashes. And if that's the case, then it makes you behave really badly. Firstly, it makes you withhold cash from the equity market, maybe put too much money into bonds and cash. And if you do that, you'll underperform because the long-term returns are greatest for equity. That's the key thing to remember. So I think, I think that fear makes people irrationally averse to taking risk. The real risk actually over the long term is not taking enough risk. 
And by risk, I'm talking about buying globally diversified equity, right? Not not necessarily betting the farm on Peloton. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little too much risk. Yeah, I'm not saying go YOLO, single stock, call options on Tesla. No, I'm saying global equity is the risk I'm talking about. People are scared of those crashes and they think of it as a bad thing. But if you reframe it as a sale, I think that's the best way to look at it. Because the key thing to remember is that markets will fall from the previous all-time high. But really, the main point is that you get back to that previous all-time high. The question is not if you're going to get there. It's a question of when. You know, single stocks can go down to zero, but whole indexes don't, particularly if they are globally diversified. Yeah, I think when you're just starting out, you have to overcome the idea that the stock market is just gambling. Like I know my parents, for example, are of that generation where they certainly see the stock market as a gamble. Um, I should probably tell them I'm doing this podcast, really. <laughs> <laughs> I think it probably comes down to what returns people experienced in the formative years of their life. Yeah, this is a point made by Morgan Housel in his book, The Psychology of Money, which is that when you're around, say, 20 maybe 30, the experience of markets, which you have at that point, pretty much sets your expectations for the rest of your life. So if you have lived through, say, the Great Depression, and you've seen the market crash that we had in the US in the 1930s, but also in the UK, then that'll put you off equity for the rest of your life. Or if you've lived through a hyperinflation period, or a high inflation period, say in the 70s, which I did when I was a young boy, then, you know, you've always got that at the back of your mind. Yeah. And I think the generation that's grown up over the last 10 years, who've maybe like sort of 30 now, they're used to that kind of YOLO environment, Bitcoin and stocks going up hugely, that they probably are used to taking a lot more risk than, say, your generation. That's why I think it's really good to kind of test your assumptions. This is what I love about Jim O'Shaughnessy. He's saying you should always be testing your assumptions and trying to update them to kind of model reality. Or there's another way of thinking of it, which is created by Julia Galef in her book, The Scout Mindset, where she says you're trying to kind of build a model of reality. And in fact, if you find things which contradict that model, you should actually embrace that. Because what you're trying to do is to build a map of the world, a mental map, which is as accurate as possible. That's kind of like a scout. Whereas a soldier mindset is you just thoughtlessly follow orders and you have a very fixed worldview. And if something contradicts that worldview, you kind of push back against it. Yeah, that's the trouble with politics, isn't it? Is that people are often in that defensive point of view when it comes to their beliefs and aren't listening to the other side of the argument. But in investment, as in many other aspects of life, you know, like science, for example, you really do have to always question those beliefs because if you do update them, only good can come of it, which is that when there is a regime shift, then you won't be stuck in that old model, which is probably going to lose you money. So I think if you are of the mindset where you're starting out and you think, oh, the stock market is gambling. I mean, the way I overcame that was to just look at the numbers. So for the S&P 500, the thing that I always come back to is that if you're going for the long term, gradually over time, the returns become more and more positive. So if you look at it, since 1950, the S&P 500 has been positive 54% of the days. If you go up to months, 61% of the months. If you go up to years, 74% of the years are positive. If you go up to five-year periods, 79%. And if you go up to 10 years, almost 90%. So it's like the longer and longer you extend that time period, it becomes a near certainty that you're going to make money. And I actually did a blog about this when I first started Pension Craft, which nobody read, of course, because at that point, nobody was listening to what I said. <laughs> but it was called The Mayfly and Methuselah. 
where I was making this distinction between things like mayflies, which live over a very short time scale, and Methuselah, which was this very old tree, which is thousands of years old. And really, these two things could be on other planets because they occupy such different niches in the ecosystem. And similarly, if you have day traders, you know, they just see market volatility. If you try and predict what the S&P is going to do in one day, you might as well flip a coin. It'll go up or down. It's really hard to predict. But if you look over, say, a decade, like you say, well, suddenly the odds become hugely different. And what dominates isn't volatility, but drift, that upward drift from earnings increasing. And that really dominates the volatility. So that's why I think, you know, if you invest over the long term, it actually simplifies things because markets do become much more predictable. Yeah, I think that's true, isn't it? So stock market is gambling on a day to day basis, but on a long term basis, it's not. And that's the thing you've got to wrap your head around as a beginner. And I guess there's other things that are kind of banded around as folk wisdom for beginners. And one is that investing is for experts and rich people and things like that, which is really not true. Which is why Warren Buffett's advice to simply put money into the S&P 500 and just leave it there is such good advice, because for most people, that's going to work really well. And I think from the point of view of people who are in the industry, of course, you're going to try and promote the idea that, look, we're the experts, you leave it to us and for a fee, we'll actually manage it for you. Or it's far too complicated for you. You can't be bothered with that kind of thing. You know, they want to actually promote that because, you know, if you're in the gravy train that's taking a fee and you want to be between people and their money, then of course, you know, (laughs) you're going to say what you do is really complicated. But for most people, I think, you know, the approach that's most likely to work is the simplest one. Yeah, definitely. And if you think it is too complicated for you to understand, you're just not interested in it particularly, then, you know, there are options like target retirement funds, which are relatively cheap and sort of do the rebalancing for you. And, you know, you can just buy and hold one thing for almost your entire life. I mean, that's why I made the video, how to buy a one fund portfolio or a two fund portfolio, because I think for most people, that's probably good enough. It was funny because we had a dinner party recently and um, after a certain amount of wine was drunk, Prosecco as well, of course, and beer. A little bit of a Santa rally. Yeah, there was, <laughs> it was a bit of a, a tense moment because <laughs> this lady was saying, oh, look, you know, we've got this financial advisor. We've known him for years. I can't be bothered with money. You know, it's all quite nerdy. You know, why would I ever want to deal with it? I just can't be bothered with it. Yeah. And I was thinking, oh, no, you know, you're being you're being milked for 1% for the rest of your life. Yeah. And Laura was saying, oh, it's all right. You know, if, if, if somebody doesn't want to manage their money, that's fine. And I... Red <laughs> rag to a bull. <laughs> it was a bit. I said, yes, it does matter. Because I think it does. Because it is so easy. You know, I mean, it, it's not something where you have to kind of study markets or do a degree in finance or mathematics or physics. You know, anyone can do this and it saves so much money. The thing that trips people up, though, is poor behavior, isn't it? It's doing the wrong things at the wrong time. Maybe a money manager can reassure people and stop them selling in downturns. I think that's the greatest value add for, a, for an advisor, which is that they stand between you and your money. And if they sense that you're panicking and about to sell in a downturn, they'll stop you doing that if they're worth their salt. And also they might provide education. You know, they might be able to actually teach you about, you know, the psychology of investing. I think that's the place where they probably could add the most value. And many of them are doing that. You know, the best financial advisors, I think, certainly do do that. But do you need to be a kind of absolute genius in order to invest? No. And I think that's another problem with the culture of star fund managers, which is we assume that there are these geniuses out there who can stock pick, but they have very little value, actually, for most people, because most of them burn out 
they do a Kathy Woods or they do a Neil Woodford, you know, eventually the kind of star becomes a meteorite and falls. That happens in almost all cases. There are very few I know of that haven't done that. Yeah, and I think it's indicative of the real problem with how a lot of people invest is that they're looking for spectacular outperformance. They're looking for the next 10-bagger. Maybe that's the myth. What's the next 10-bagger? When really, there's a quote from Guy Thomas, who wrote the book Free Capital, which I really like, the quote. He says, The ease of online dealing makes many people act as if investing was positively scored, but the arithmetic of compounding dictates that it's really negatively scored. Success in investing consists mainly of avoiding big mistakes. And I think that's right. Like you could have many years of getting 50% returns. If you have one year of 100% loss, that's over, right? And <laughs> it's not about getting the 10 baggers. It's about doing the right thing for a long period of time. What is a 10 bagger, Michael? A uh, stock that goes up 1,000%. It's tenfold. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I think some people don't know that. And I certainly didn't know that before I started using financial Twitter, FinTwit, when people were talking about 10 baggers. And I thought, what the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> no idea. But I still think, yeah, you're absolutely right. You have no idea because you've never had one, Roman. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? An index has probably become a 10-bagger over my lifetime. Oh, true. Almost any diversified index, I think, probably f- fits the bill. But if you wait long enough, you know, almost all stocks either become 10-baggers or they go to zero. Oh, that's interesting. It's like a winner-takes-all situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, either they go to the wall or they become successful. The vast majority, of course, underperform the market, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, so I think that's one misconception that you're looking for these kind of needle in the haystacks. And the other that I see a lot in the UK is that people feel investing for high dividends is the way to go rather than total return. I get that from a lot of people, particularly in the UK, where stocks have tended to be high dividend. And of course, if you're milking a company for its income, then that company can't reinvest the money back into its own business and grow its earnings organically. So growth has tended to lag in the UK. And you've just got to look at the market cap of the UK relative to the US and how much it's shrunk over the years to see why that's problematic. I think somebody called it the Jurassic Park of indexes, you know, the FTSE 100 and the FTSE 250, for example, because of this huge focus on dividends rather than capital growth. I think people look at it, don't they? They feel, well, these stocks are literally paying me money to hold them. So why wouldn't I want those ones? Why do I want the ones that are not paying a dividend? Well, what's interesting is that during a market downturn, actually, one of the styles which performs well is high dividend, at least initially. But the problem is, if you do get a full-on recession, one of the first things that the management of the company will do is focus on survival. Because if their revenues are falling, they won't want to pay out more of their profits as dividend to their shareholders. So usually what happens is the payout ratio, the proportion of profit which they repay to shareholders, falls. So initially what happens is the prices go down, dividends stay high for a while, so the dividend yield increases. And as a style, that does well. But then as you get further into a recession, if it lasts a long time, the dividend gets cut and you know these things stop outperforming. Yeah, I think people forget that the dividend gets cut. They kind of see high dividend stocks as almost bonds when they're not really bonds, are they? The dividend is variable. (laughs) The thing to remember is a dividend itself is just on the basis of the kindness of management. And that kindness can very rapidly evaporate once market conditions start to get worse. So maybe we should explain why potentially investing for total return makes more sense than just going for dividends. Because I think people think, oh, I can live off the dividends and I'll never have to sell my stocks. 
I think the metaphor here is is interesting because that can frame it incorrectly. Many people think of of stocks like a golden goose, you know, which if you kill the golden goose, which is laying the dividend eggs, then you'll get less eggs in future. But I think a much better metaphor, which I've actually used in a video before, is is something like a crop. So let's say you've got sweet corn, right? You're growing sweet corn or corn, as it's called in America, maize. <laughs> let's not get distracted by corn. <laughs> <laughs> So let's say you've got 100 ears which you which you plant every year and you get an extra 10 every year. Ears? Yeah, ears of <laughs> corn. What's wrong with that? Oh my, I didn't know that's what it's called. Okay, I got distracted. Carry on. Husks? <laughs> so you've got corn. The corn is going in the ground. The corn is going in the ground and you get an extra, say, 10% every year, which is generated by the abundance of your crops. So if you harvest at a rate of, say, 5%, then you've still got an excess of 5% every year. So the size of your crop will continue growing. And this is where the idea of a perpetual portfolio comes from. If you're harvesting more slowly than you're growing the portfolio, then your portfolio will grow perpetually. Yes, you're talking about selling a bit of stock every year. Yeah, and now that that's so easy and cheap to do, then I think that's an easy way to actually fund your retirement. You sell a little bit of the stock every year, and as long as it lasts more than your lifetime, you'll be fine. I think people are just scared of that idea that the size of the pot is shrinking. But the point is that if it shrinks at a rate which will not exhaust it before you die, then you're absolutely fine. And the other point is that dividends are not free money. So the company is paying that out from its cash reserves and profits and the stock price adjusts when a dividend is paid. Yeah. So you're, you're kind of taking one form of gain and turning it into another form of gain, which is cash in your pocket, which some people prefer. But really, you've got to have a faith in the company itself that if it reinvests that dollar into the company, that it'll manage to grow its earnings in future by just the same amount, if not more. If the return on equity is high for the company, then that's the case. And every time that a company does invest, that's always the way they should approach it, which is, if I invest this money into the company, what will be the return on that investment? So that's the way they should be operating. So that's why I think you're right. It's a misunderstanding to just focus on dividend as a sort of retirement portfolio. Certainly, if you'd invested in just high dividend stocks over this last decade's bull rally, you would have underperformed significantly because you'd miss out on a lot of those growth companies which don't pay dividends. Yeah, and it was a really big growth rally. If you did have to choose one style which performed really well, it was large cap growth, which is a weird combo. Usually you'd think growth would come from small caps, but of course this was the FAMG stocks, you know, mega caps like Apple, Microsoft, for example, which were incredibly good at growing their profits, doing share buybacks and boosting their share prices. So I think that dividend myth is certainly one that we should bust with a great deal of glee. <laughs> what else should we bust? I mean, if you're on social media, the thing that you often see around stocks is so-called technical analysis, which from what I can see are sort of graphs of stock history and people just start drawing kind of lines on there to predict where <laughs> stocks are going to go in the future. Now, you'll be able to tell from this that I'm not a fan, but the idea is that you don't need to understand anything about the fundamentals of what you're buying, that it forms these certain patterns which you can actually identify which give you a clue as to which way this price is headed in future. So, for example, there's something called a death cross, which is seen as being bearish. It shows the price is going to go down. It sounds like it's going to go down, doesn't it? A death cross. <laughs> I'm trying to think of other examples of these uh, technical patterns. My favourite one, and there are lots of parody accounts which make fun of these patterns, 
My favourite one is the vomiting camel pattern, <laughs> which was created by Katie Martin just to make fun of what's happening with technical analysis. And what she did was she drew this graph of a vomiting camel. I can't remember what the, uh, the actual index was that she was looking at. But then what was hilarious is that someone from CNBC actually picked up on the vomiting camel. and What is a legitimate <laughs> technique. <laughs> and of course, in cryptocurrency, this is a popular means of analysis because there is no fundamental analysis for cryptocurrency because you don't have earnings to go by. And they also picked up on the vomiting camel and they actually quoted Katie Martin of EFT as being head of vomiting camel asset management, which she always used as a joke, you know, in her Twitter handle. Vomcam for short. Vomcam. <laughs> <laughs> But still, I think I think the likelihood of this stuff working is very limited. I mean, the best that you can say about it is that if enough people believe it, it'll kind of become a self-fulfilling prophecy. But I think fortunately enough people have sense that, you know, they wouldn't take technical analysis seriously. Yeah, I think to go back to like the death cross, what that actually supposedly is, is it's when the chart of a stock's short-term moving average... So around the 50-day moving average, say, crosses below its long-term moving average of the 200-day. And people say, okay, that's a sign that things are not going to go well. Which is really momentum, right? So, I mean, there are certain ways in which these can pick up on factors which do work. For example, momentum is a factor which does well over the long term. And so, you know, if they do kind of pick up on that kind of thing, maybe there's some truth in it. But the more complex they get, you know, when you get to kind of Fibonacci retracements, you're thinking, well, you know, that's a very complicated story, which is probably wrong. I think a lot of it is just sort of data mining, isn't it? If you mine enough data and throw enough sort of algorithms at it, maybe you'll find something which looks like it fits a lot of the data. But really, the patterns that do work are the ones which are long term. And there you don't need, you know, these kind of graphs to, to kind of show the way. So again, you know, that drift, the drift pattern, that's what we should call it. <laughs> now, I like the VomCam better. <laughs> we need a snappier name for it. If you want a more evidence-grounded approach to investing, which will give you better outcomes, that's our approach in PensionCraft. If you want to learn more about the membership, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, so today's dumb question of the week is, are credit ratings useless? And what we mean here is corporate credit ratings and sovereign credit ratings. We don't mean, you know, your personal credit rating you look up on Experian. We're talking about when Moody's, S&P, Fitch, these big ratings agencies give a kind of triple A score or a triple B score to a company. So, Romin, how much stock can we put in these credit ratings? Well, I used to work on a kind of credit risk system. So ratings were very much a kind of grounding of, you know, the fundamental analysis for bonds. So the idea basically is that you give a bond a credit rating, which tells you how likely it is that that company will go bust. So these are for companies which issue bonds. Essentially, you're buying the debt, lending money to the company. So your real worry is you're not going to get your money back. So that's why credit ratings are useful. It's interesting how these credit rating agencies actually came about. This was in the 19th century when there were lots of railroad companies in the US which were continually going bust and having scandals, you know, misallocation of capital and fraud in some cases. So that's why the credit rating agencies like Moody's and S&P came into being, because they'd have these kind of catalogues where you could say, oh, OK, so this dodgy rail company incorporated, what's their credit rating? Oh, it's single C oh dear, I think I'll avoid that one, or I'd expect a very high income from that because it's very likely to go bust. So for single bond ratings, actually, 
Moody's and S&P, Fitch, are actually very good at doing that. I mean, they've been incredibly successful as businesses. So those three, Moody's, S&P and Fitch, have a market share of, I think, over 95% between them and operating margins of over 50%. So it's a good business to be giving out these credit ratings. And it's no surprise that Warren Buffett has bought, uh, I think it was Moody's, a big slice of Moody's. So, yep, good business, good business model, because guess who pays for the credit rating? The issuer of the loan. <laughs> yes, that's right. So it's like paying someone to mark your homework, right? Now, you know, if there are two people who are marking your homework, two companies, and one of the companies offers better grades and the other one offers worse grades, clearly there's rating arbitrage to be had here. You'd pay the company which is going to be more generous and give you a higher credit rating. Yeah, it does seem like the incentives are a little out of whack here. <laughs> <laughs> you can just shop around to get a good credit rating for the loan and so you can sell it on. But, you know, the actual investors themselves, if they don't believe the credit rating company, if it is obviously a sham, then there's only so much you can gain the system before people just ignore your credit rating. So there is that kind of aspect of it which keeps the rating agencies honest. And on the whole, they do a pretty good job. Yeah, but what happened in 2008, right, where the credit rating agencies badged as AAA all this housing market debt which had been packaged up and it was just nonsense right there was sort of defaults all over the place i think the problem there was that we had a new asset class essentially which was very difficult to model and instead of digging into the details of this thing a collateralized debt obligation with these complex waterfall structures for the cash flows and a slicing of the risk. I think people didn't really dig into what the actual risks were, which in this case was liquidity. You know, in a down market, this is all going to go to poo and you're not going to be able to sell these things. And nobody really thought about that. You know, they just saw the AAA rating and just thought, oh, great, I'll lever it up 10 times. But when you sort of explain it in like really basic terms, it seems so obviously nonsense. Like it was... We'll take a lot of debt, which is of a bad rating, put it in one package and tie a nice bow on it, and then magically it will be really highly rated. Like, how does that make sense? Well, it does make sense. And, you know, the metaphor I used in the past was like a kind of concentric castle where the way this works is the bonds at the bottom of the pile are the ones which are like the kind of riskiest part of the debt. And if those default, then the bonds which are above them in the pecking order don't actually get hurt. So you, you actually have these tranches of risk so that you get the equity risk at the bottom, that's the toxic waste. Then you get the mezzanine tranches in the middle and then the senior tranches at the top. So in order for the senior tranches to get hit by defaults, you have to have eaten away through all the other structures underneath them, the subordinated tranches. If that's what happened though. Well, no, actually what happened is the market became so illiquid that everything fell in value and you didn't know what the prices were because there was no market. Nobody wanted to buy them anymore. So, you know, you were left with a tranche. You didn't know what it was worth. What you could see was the defaults gradually eating into the structure. But many of the actual structures themselves, certainly in Europe, actually came through with flying colours. European asset-backed securities actually did very well. So I think, you know, it's easy to poo-poo these things. But, but I think the key thing is that if you've got a rating for something which is new, which is not a corporate bond, which is their core business, which they've been doing for over a century, you should always question the rating. But why did we even need these structures? Well, you know, there's always going to be financial engineering and we still use them today. If you have a mortgage, it's very likely in Europe or the US that this will be packaged up inside a structure called an asset-backed security. 
with the riskiest stuff at the bottom, the low-rated tranches, and the senior stuff at the top. And those are bought by investors all the time. You may even have exposure to that in your pension itself. You know, you may be getting the income from one of these asset-backed security structures. It just seems like it is a way to gloss over the contents of the package. It becomes a sort of mystery box. Well, as long as the underlying is fairly liquid, and in this case, you know, if it's mortgages, it's an old market which has been around forever, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a problem. Plus, it's a way of securitizing large amounts of debt and getting it off the bank's balance sheet, which means that they can do a volume business. You know, if we just relied on mom and pop banks to do loans for mortgages, it would be a much smaller industry. So, so, you know, I don't have personal issues with the structure itself, but I think the rating agencies certainly struggled to do a good job of coming up with a rating. And we always used to joke, actually, that if you just look at the credit spread for the individual bonds, that reacts very quickly if there's a problem with a company. So, for example, if you look at Lehman's credit spread, that was giving you a very different signal to, say, the actual credit rating of the company. Because, of course, if you rely on analysts to come up with an updated credit rating, there will be a kind of natural reluctance to do that. And it takes time to analyse the company. And it's humans, ultimately, that do the analysis. Whereas if you look at the credit spread, that's just people voting with their feet and selling the actual bonds, which reacts very quickly at the first sign of trouble. And I think there's also an issue, isn't there, where the credit rating agencies, if they did a downgrade, it has a lot of power over markets. So yeah, this credit spread might be widening anyway, but if they downgraded a company's debt from investment grade to junk, the credit spread will really blow out, won't it? So they have a lot of power over markets. And they can create a systemic crisis themselves. So let's imagine that someone at Moody's went crazy and just downgraded a huge swath of, you know, <laughs> of, of debt which is out there. Essentially, they could fabricate a crisis very quickly. That would make a great movie, I think. Yeah, because certain institutions can only buy, say, investment grade debt, right? So they would have to sell. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I call this a downgrade cascade where, you know, if you do get the investment grade stuff falling into junk territory, then funds have to sell it. And then you get this cycle of, of selling and downgrades. So I think you're right. I think that the rating agencies themselves have a responsibility to be very careful about downgrading a company. Plus, it's their customer, right? They're going to piss off their customer if they say, oh, you know how we said you were investment grade? Well, <laughs> we now think you're junk. Yeah, but it's interesting at the moment. There's a huge amount of debt, more than ever before, I believe, at this triple B grade, which is one notch above going down to junk, isn't there? And it's gradually built up over time because, you know, we've had a rally for about 10 years where the default rate has been almost zero. And a lot of the investment grade debt has kind of migrated down towards the lowest notch of investment grade, which from the point of view of the investor gives you a high yield. You know, if you have triple B, which is the lowest notch of investment grade, if it takes that step from triple B to double B, then it becomes junk. That's the problem. And I think about 45% of all the investment grade debt in the world right now is at that lowest notch. That's a systemic risk, though, isn't it? If there was a huge downgrading of that triple B debt, there would be a lot of issues in the credit market. Yeah. And, and one of the problems is that as risk-free rates increase, the debt servicing costs for these companies are increasing. So if you are a company that's struggling to make enough revenue to pay your, your coupons on your bonds, this could tip you over the edge. So I think this is going to be a bit of a zombie apocalypse in the sense that you know a lot of these companies which are having difficulty servicing the debt will be kind of pushed over the edge. And it may actually trigger this downgrade cascade. 
I mean, I think a lot of it is sort of artificial, though. There's an OECD study that found that downgrades from triple B into the junk status are much rarer than downgrades on the rest of the rating spectrum. So there's kind of this, there shouldn't be, but there's this kind of wall that credit rating agencies draw and are very reluctant to push companies over it. But once they do push the company over, suddenly its funding costs will increase massively as it goes from investment grade to junk. So, you know, you can see why they'd be reluctant to stick the knife into their customer, but really they have to be able to be honest enough to do that. And these are what we call fallen angels, aren't they? You can buy a fund which is fallen angels, which is companies that who've been downgraded to junk status. And your hope is that they come back to flourishing once again. Yeah, that, that's the hope anyway. That, you know, it's essentially a good company which has fallen on hard times, which will eventually recover again. And then the credit spreads will tighten. And of course, then the bonds will rally, the equity will rally. So it'll be a good story. I suppose the other issue I have with credit ratings agencies is does it discourage investors from doing their own due diligence? We're just reliant on these supposedly neutral arbiters. I think the answer is yes. You know, if you do invest in single corporate bonds, I think that's pretty brave as a retail investor, a normal investor. I think I'd only invest via funds because the funds give you the diversification. They have a badge on the front which says what they can and can't buy. And, you know, if a single name, a single issuer goes bust, it's not necessarily a problem. So certainly on my market crash shopping list, one of the things on the list is high yield bond funds, because these are things which sell off massively, maybe 40% during a crisis. I mean, that's huge for a bond fund. <laughs> it is huge for a bond fund. But, but then they recover. That's the point, because they are diversified as the credit spreads then tighten. So I think that can be quite an opportunity. So I think of it like a stream of cash flows where you get on board at a cheaper price. And, you know, I think, I think that could be interesting. But buying a single high yield bond, well, you could quite likely lose a lot of your money if it does default. So that's why I think unless you have got huge amounts to invest, I'd never buy the single bonds. I mean, I sort of look at these credit rating agencies a little bit like exam boards and where they're issuing grades to students who have taken their exams. And over time, you get kind of what's called grade inflation, where the percentage of students getting A's over time goes up. And are students any smarter than they used to be? Probably not. Shouldn't it be fixed? Like a certain amount of companies have to be in each tier. Well, that's why I think the credit spreads are useful because, you know, those are an absolute measure of credit risk in a sense, you know, and it's market implied. So having some kind of calibration between the credit ratings and the credit spreads is probably a better way to go. But that wouldn't be much of a business where you just look at the market credit spread and just band things up from AAA to single C. Yeah, we could do that. We could. And in fact, some people do. I think there is somebody that does that. There is a company which does that. And, you know, how much you pay for that, I think <laughs> probably quite limited, but it's less profitable. I mean, I'd just change it and say investment grade now does not include triple B, just immediate downgrade for the whole of triple B. <laughs> <laughs> and you trigger a crisis, Michael. <laughs> Too many companies there. That's triggering crisis. Yeah, just kill the zombies. <laughs> <laughs> you trigger the apocalypse. That's that, that would be on you, Michael. <laughs> but sometimes you just need to get on with it. They've been hanging around for ages, feasting on our flesh. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. If you've enjoyed the show, it'd be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on your podcast platform. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. 
This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.